The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me who has surpassed me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Praise Lord. To you Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. Amen. Andre Bloom was just a boy when his family left Russia during the revolution and settled in Paris. He was very bright. He studied physics and chemistry and biology before going on to complete his doctoral work in medicine at the University of Paris. And he eventually became a surgeon in the French army during World War II and worked with the resistance there. Bloom was, by all accounts, an absolute genius. But in addition to essentially growing up a stateless refugee for his entire life, he also grew up largely away from family. He was at boarding schools most of the time, which in early 20th century could often be rough and sometimes violent. And then he was finally able to go back and be with his family. And when he got there, he had this realization. He said, when I found myself confronted with perfect happiness, a quite unexpected thing happened. I suddenly discovered that if happiness is aimless, it's unbearable. I could not accept aimless happiness because I believed in nothing, so happiness seemed to be stale. So I decided I would give myself a year to see whether life had any meaning. If in the course of that year I could not find any meaning, I decided I would not live. I would commit suicide. He said that when he was a teenager. Bloom died just over a decade ago at the age of 89. And he was known throughout Europe at the time of his death, not as Andre, but as Anthony, Father Anthony. He was a metropolitan in the Russian Orthodox Church's diocese of Great Britain. 
So how did Andre, this disillusioned, modern, secular refugee, become Anthony, a celibate Orthodox monk, priest, bishop, then archbishop, then metropolitan, who wrote book after book about prayer and the spiritual life? Well, he says that months into his year-long intentional search for meaning, after he hadn't found anything at all, despite looking everywhere he possibly could, the leader of his youth organization asked him to attend a group meeting where a priest was to give a sermon. Bloom was adamant about not going. But the leader said he just needed warm bodies in the room, so could you please come and just sit there? You don't have to listen. Personal favor sort of thing, right? So he did. And he hated every minute of it. He rushed home, asked his mother if they had a Bible in the house so that he could look at it and refute all of the nonsense that this priest had been telling him that whole evening. So he gets the Bible down and he even counts out the chapters of all four Gospels to see which one is the shortest so as to not waste too much time on the matter. He began reading the Gospel according to Mark. And he says of that moment, Before I reached the third chapter, I became aware that on the other side of my desk there was a presence. And the certainty was so strong that it was Christ standing there that it has never left me. He found his meaning. Our gospel text this evening gets to the nerve center of the human experience. In the very first words out of the mouth of Christ in John's Gospel, which is this question, what do you want? Sometimes it's translated as what are you seeking or what are you looking for? And while I doubt that very many of us have had uh, moments with such apocalyptic overtones as Father Anthony, we are all still wrestling out the same question about meaning. What do you want? What are you looking for out of life? Why are you here? Of course, the anxiety-inducing answer is, for most of us, I think, we're not quite sure. If I had to choose just one thing, what would it be? There's this poem by Edgar Lee Masters that is full of haunting beauty, and the last few lines read this way. Life without meaning is the torture of restlessness and vague desire. It is a boat longing for the sea and yet afraid. I mean, if that doesn't sum up the experience of late modern Western culture, I don't know what does. Restlessness and vague desire. So what's the solution? Should we just make up our own meaning? How do you think that will play out? The reality is, is that each of us are living out already an answer to the question, what do you want? Whether we recognize it or not, I think if we're honest with ourselves, what we have is a vague desire for happiness, whatever that might mean. It could be a life of pleasure and ease or a life of surpassed career goals. It may be having the correct amount of money in our bank account by the time we retire. It could be having a husband or a wife or children or grandchildren. It could be as simple as having a better cup of coffee brewing in your mug than your neighbor's. You see, not only are we at, uh, constantly asking the question, 
what do I want at a subconscious level? We are also being given answers to that question all the time by our world to try on and see if they fit. What you really want is perfectly shaped eyebrows, right? What you really want is a house with better feng shui in a nicer neighborhood. What you really want is a car that really reflects the sort of success and power that you carry around with you at all times. What you really want is to find yourself out on the open road or to be self-made and independent or to be part of the in crowd, whoever those people may be. The noise is just constant and there is this constant pushing and pulling and cramming and crushing happening to you so that you will fit into the right mold of desire, that you will want the right things. And so you wake up in the morning and you've immediately got a boss who wants something from you or a friend who demands you be a certain way or a spouse who needs this or that or a kid who needs apparently everything and apparently immediately. And you've got to catch up on the latest thousand hot takes on the latest Donald Trump tweet. You've got to make sure the mortgage gets paid and you've got to check Facebook for a minute and there are emails to respond to and you just remembered the oil in the car needs changing. You've got Amazon Prime and other 30 things that you need to make your household run smoothly and maybe even go to church and maybe even make sure that everyone sees you smiling at your kids so they don't get the wrong idea about who you are. Oh, but you left wet laundry in the wash and you don't have eggs for tomorrow and we have become so consumed with the surface level of living that we are filled with restlessness and vague desire And I would say that what we need more than anything else is to hear the voice of John the Baptist echoing out in the wilderness, hoarse and gruff, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's here. If you have your Bibles, turn back to John chapter 1. I want you to notice two things right away. John returns to the place where he met Jesus last. He knows to keep going back to the same place over and over again. And do you know why? It's because Jesus always returns. He keeps coming back to that place to meet John. And so in two sentences, John sums up Christianity for us. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the sacrificial atonement. And he is what, as John says, a man. He's fully human, but he's not just fully human. John tells us that this one who came after him surpasses him. Why? Because he existed before him. He's hitting at Nicene Christology centuries before it would ever take root in the church. That Jesus Christ existed before he became a man as the eternal Son of God. Not only that, but he is the Messiah, the one anointed with God's Spirit, and not just anointed, but the one upon whom and in whom the Spirit remains or abides, it's sometimes translated. That's the one that John should be looking for, the one upon whom the Spirit would abide. And two of John's disciples are there, and they have heard him call out now for the second time, Look, the Lamb of God! And really, 
John sets the tone of what the goal is for all Christian preaching, which is to get people to look at Christ and him crucified. And we do this week after week because I truly believe that when we see him, when we see the Lamb, that we will be like these two disciples. We'll go after him. And that's where he asks us the same question that's buried in this text, those first words out of his mouth in this gospel that he asks those two disciples, what do you want? What are you seeking? What are you spending the limited energies of your life for? Their response is instructive for us. They ask in return, where are you, here's that word again, abiding? Where are you abiding, teacher? And Jesus responds with an invitation that will alter their lives forever. Because this is not just about his housing situation. It's a much deeper question than that. And the answer that they will be given, the thing that they will find if they come and see is that the place that Jesus abides is in the love of the Father. It is in, in the abidingness of the Holy Spirit. And what they want, they realize over time, is I think what we want is to abide there too. It's to be in that place. You were created to be in that place of abiding in the love of Jesus' Father. So why do we feel so filled with restlessness and vague desire? In ancient Israel, even before they had a homeland, before they had a temple, they had the tabernacle. And this was the place of God's dwelling. It was where his abiding presence was made manifest. And the tabernacle was designed to be a microcosm of the universe. It was a miniature of the world. So that the priests who worked there and the people who gathered around would remember that the things that were happening there were supposed to somehow ripple out into the earth. That's what we see happening in that prophecy from Isaiah. And what happened there at that tabernacle every day without change? Every day in the heat of summer or in the cold of winter, in peace or in war, in times of har harvest or even in the worst, most severe famine, what happened there every single day? Exodus 29 tells us, this is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day, two lambs a year old, one in the morning and the other at twilight. The commandment then goes on to talk more in detail about what the sacrifice should be like. Spoiler alert, there's some flour to make bread and wine, morning and evening, every single day. Before the blood of the morning lamb was dried, the blood of the evening lamb was spilt. Every day, twice a day, the priests would lay their hands on a cute little lamb. They would say their prayers, they would grab a knife, and then they would watch the life drain out of that animal every single day to remind them what it costs to be in relationship with a holy God, to remind them of their own sin and to see acted out 
over and over again what it requires to be in that abiding place. The life of the Lamb. Do you see now what John is saying? In the Greek text, he has definite articles all over the place. He's saying, look, the Lamb of the God who takes away the sin, all of it, of the world, the whole thing. He's here. This is what the world wants. Whether we realize it or not, we want to abide with God in the peace that can only come through the sacrifice of the Lamb. That's the answer to the question of Christ. You want to abide with God whether you realize it or not. The restlessness and vague feelings for happiness that you've been searching, set them aside. The call, of course, is not just to look. It's to follow that lamb and to abide in him, as John records for us later in his gospel, as a branch abides in a vine. That is what has been written onto every human heart. The call is to set out onto Christ our ocean rather than be a boat longing for the sea and yet afraid. If you'll permit me a coda, I just want to point out what Andrew does with Peter at the end of this text. We're told the first thing he did was he went and found his brother. So I suggest to you, if you imbibe mostly the culture in which we swim, one that is often built on fear and a scarcity mentality where all claims to truth are seen as claims to power, then you will likely either feel like crushing people with your Christianity, or you will feel like you would rather have your skin picked off than have to tell your friends and neighbors in a meaningful way about who Jesus is to you. Right? But if you have answered his call to come and see where he abides, that place is now the church. That's where he abides. He abides in the gathering of his people, where his word is broken open, where his flesh is given for his people to feast on. If you have come to that place and you dwell with him in his father's love, then you will start to become like Andrew. You will be compelled without any awkwardness any longer to go and tell people that you care about that you have finally figured out what you want. You have found your true home. And it's Jesus Christ himself. So I would say, if that's not you yet, if you haven't found that welling up within you, sit like Father Anthony did with the Gospel of Mark. Take the shortest one. Keep reading until he shows up. Read with prayer and ask the Spirit to illumine your mind and your heart that he would really force your desire mold not into the shape of the world, but in the shape of Christ. You would follow him all the days of your life and that you would long to see other people come with you and see where the Lord abides.